Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Journalist Talk. And today I'm bringing another different episode. I'm thinking of doing February the different episodes that I'm planning for you guys. But just let me know through our social media if you guys love it, if you guys want to see more of the same episodes that I've been posting right now because they are good ideas and I feel like they bring more to my podcast and for your knowledge as well. Like, I mean, I've been bringing news, actual news, not hard news though, but today I'm here and I want to talk about one journalist and his name is Frank Delomo. I'm going to talk about him because I, I got a book with his works and some commentaries uh, from when he was in the Times, in the LA Times. And uh, I felt that it's like such a good read uh, to see how they were written before because all of his work is done like in the 80s, 90s, I guess, in this book. Um, most of it, though. And it's so good to see like how the writing is different, how his column was um, very important at the time for the subjects that he was talking about. And then I did some research on him. I found out something common and I really wanted to bring it here. So first of all, I thank my university for giving me this book because sometimes they have like some journalist books with all their columns or short stories or anything that they wrote and they give it to us so this book is like very amazing to have and well let's get to it Frank Delomo he was born in May 18th 1948 and he died on February 19th 2004 he was an editor, columnist, and reporter for the LA Times since the 70s when he entered there as an intern. So he spent like his whole life at the LA Times and that must be like such an accomplishment feeling to have. And then in 1972, he was the co-founder of the California Chicano News Media Association as well. He graduated here from CSUN, so <laughs> that is one of the two things that we have in common, actually. I found two things in common with him. In the same year that he graduated, he got recognized with Outstanding Journalism Graduate and Outstanding Overall Graduate, which are very nice accomplishments here. He worked for a total of 34 years at the LA Times. It's huge. And throughout his working there, he wrote and advocated a lot about topics about illegal immigration, issues affecting the Latino community, city policies, pop culture, and he was also a little into sports and specifically baseball. And the second thing that we have in common, he chaired in 1982 a meeting of Latino journalists, which led to the creation of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists in 84. And right now, I'm, in, I'm a board member of the season chapter of NAHJ. And that is just, like, so nice to be able to read uh, the stories that the guy that basically created it and uh, see how his work impacted this community that I am part of since I'm from Brazil. And... Uh, it's just like too much and I really enjoyed the reading and knowing that 
he had a, a big foot in this club creation. During his career, he was awarded with an Emmy Award for The Unwanted, a documentary on illegal immigration. He also got a Pulitzer Prize for public service in Native War for his work with his team on 27 Story Latinos. And he also got a Nieman Fellowship at Harvard University in journalism between the years of 87 and 88. What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read a few of his columns here for you guys that are in my book. He separated, not he, but like the book is separated in a few parts, mainly like a bigger broad theme throughout the chapters like politics, sports, education. And I'm going to read one story in each section. And let's get to it. So the first thing that we're going to do is read the politics section, which is the first one. And right now I'm going to be on page 43, reading something he wrote in April 1st, 1996, called The Machine's Days Are Numbered. I must confess, some years ago, for a few weeks, I was a Republican. For most of my career as a journalist, I've registered as an independent I figured that it's most appropriate for someone who reports on public affairs and tries to write about them in a fair, balanced manner. Like other journalists, I take pride in routinely being accused by Democrats of being a Republican and by Republicans of being a Democrat. But I must confess my brief affiliation with the GOP because it will help explain why the most important outcome of last today's primary election was the enactment of Proposition 198, the Open Primary Initiative. It started in 1998, all voters, Democrats, Republicans, and 1.5 million political independents like me will receive primary ballots listing the names of every candidate in every party, major or minor. And we can cast our ballots for whomever we best like, regardless of political affiliation. Not surprisingly, leaders of the two major parties are threatening to take Proposition 198 to court. But I can't envision too many judges in California deciding that political parties have more rights than individual votes, although I know plenty of people in both major parties who act that way. I, in quotes, became Republican, in fact, because of an especially egregious act of arrogance by one of the two Democrat factions that dominate politics on Los Angeles' side. The factions revolve around two senior Latino officials in town, County Superior Gloria Molina and City Councilman Richard Alatorre. Their loyalists constantly maneuver against each other to recruit and groom candidates for seats in the legislature, city council, and board of education. Apparently, casting your lot with one of the side is akin to taking a blood oath against the other. But loyalty, I can understand. Grooming candidates in waiting is forgivable, too. What irritates me is how they handpick candidates. While before any election where a seat is open on the east side, word goes from one faction to the other, designating their favorite candidates. That's a signal that fundraisers and activists to swing into action on behalf of the man or woman who has a Richard's or Gloria's blessing. Less names are never necessary. What gals me is the unspoken assumption that thousands of East Side Latino voters should have no say in the matter. Once the two factions fight it out in the Democratic primary, 
The East Side residents vote in November is mere formality. That's because most East Side districts are gerrymandated to heavily favor Democrats, which means that even those Democrats are political hacks, which has been the case more than a few times, they still manage to win public office. That was the situation a few years ago when a particularly dense but Slavish Loyal operated in one of the East Side factions, narrowly defeated a smart young businessman for the seat in the legislature. I was venting my frustration over that. Turns of events late on one evening at Lucy's El Adobe, the Mexican restaurant in Hollywood, that has long been a hangout for political junkies. I would had too many margaritas and was boasting to the late Frank Casado, the Latino activist who ran the restaurant with his wife Lucy that even I could beat the clod the side machines had come up with this time. I want to register as a Republican and run against him, I shouted. Frank, always up for making political mischief, reached under the bar and came up with the voter registration card. And with a somewhat shaky stroke of the pen, I became a Republican. I didn't remember what I had done until a few weeks passed, and I started getting lots of junk mail addressed to my fellow Republican. I quickly re-registered as an independent, swearing never again to join a political party or let Casado ply me with his margaritas. As for the East Side hack, his own re-election regularly ever since, despite his lackluster record. But his days are numbered. In a few years, he'll fall victim to another political reform that California voters enacted by initiative, term limits. Political party leaders predicted the onset of anarchy in state government when term limits passed in 1990, but it hasn't happened yet. Or if it has, nobody has noticed. One may yet find that open primaries also work out better than the naysayers claim. Open voting can cripple the machine's control by giving all primary voters choice outside of the anointed favorites. This may not screen out all the hacks and political extremists who've made California politics so unproductive of late. But it does set up one more hurdle for them to overcome before getting elected. The many dependent-minded Californians who often don't vote nowadays because we don't like the choices major party give us. Now I'm going to go to the next chapter, and it's Mexico and Central America. I'm going to open here on page 63. And the name of this piece is Hard Work in an Area of Shadows from June 30th, 1983. It's not unusual to hear words of praise for war correspondents killed in the line of duty. It's also not uncommon to hear criticism for the work while they are still alive and working in the line of fire. That seems contradictory, but then contradictions are a fact of life for journalists working in Central America, like my two friends who died last week. Dio Torgerson, the Times Mexico City Bureau chief and freelance photographer Richard Cross were only the latest casualties of an undeclared border war that was been going on for a year between Honduras and Nicaragua. Although the number of deaths is disputed by the two governments, neutral observers believe that the conflict has claimed 600 lives. The Nicaraguans contend that Honduras is helping Reagan administration give aid and comfort to rebels who are trying to overthrow their Sandinista government. The Honduras deny this and charge that the Nicaraguans have been firing into their territory constantly without provocation. 
Given the circumstances, it is not surprising that the Honduras government is first blamed the deaths of Torgerson and Cross on Sandinista troops firing from Nicaraguan side of the border. The Nicaraguans denied any responsibility, suggesting that the two men were killed either by Honduran troops or by the anti-Sidonist rebels operating inside Honduras. The most recent reports indicate that the two were killed when their small car hit a landmine. Anyone who has been in the mountainous hindliners along the Honduran-Nicaraguan borders know how hard it will ever be to find out what really happened. Ironically, Targuson and Cross were in the backward region of dirty roads, small villages, and have jungle to try to determine the truth about what was going on there. The area is only 70 miles from the Honduran capital of Tegucigalpa, but the distance is closer to 160 miles when measured along the narrow, winded, rooted roads that one can often must travel in the country. If isolation were measured like distance, it would seem even further. The sheer physical isolation of so many parts of Central America is one thing that even most well-informed North Americans often fail to comprehend as they try to make sense of political turmoil that is taking place there. It contributes to the difficulty of trying to piece together some resemblance of the truth about a terrible, complex situation. I last traveled to the back roads of Honduras two years ago, visiting refugee camps on the country's border with El Salvador. It took two days to cover fewer than 100 miles by jeep, traversing five mountains ranges. I interviewed dozens of Salvadorian refugees in those camps who told stories of brutality perpetuated against them by El Salvador security forces fighting anti-government guerrillas. Their accounts were later disputed by a Salvadoran government spokesman. I had expected that for doing for a long trip, there was plenty of time to reflect on how horrible things could happen in such an isolated region and never be fully known to the outside world. Earlier this year, I visited the highlands of Guatemala to try to determine the accuracy of reports of brutality fighting there between the Guatemalan army and guerrillas. At one point, I traveled to the Altiplano, as it is known, in a helicopter flying down the sleep jungle canyons and darting between fog shadowed mountains more than 7,000 feet high. It was remarkable to see small tattooed huts clinging to the sides of those sweep peaks and hidden amid the Green River valleys. And it was eerie to see so many of them devoid of life, no smoky fire, no waving children, no pets or farm animals, who drove away the Indian peasant who once lived on those farms. The government blamed it on the guerrillas. Guerrilla spokesmen in Mexico City said that the government troops were responsible. And as much as I want to determine who was telling me the truth, I still cannot say for certain. The wars now going in these isolated places understandably have stirred some heated emotions. The journalists who reported on them are not only in great physical danger. Twelve foreign correspondents have been killed in Central America since 1978, along with scores of local reporters and editors, but their accuracy and even their sincerity are also constantly being questioned. Within days of Torgerson and Cross's deaths, the news media were criticized by a group of conservative congressmen who met the President Reagan to warn him that his Central American policies were losing public support. Instead of attributing this development to the many shortcomings of Reagan's policies, they blamed it on the degree to which the news media, both because of bias and because of style, making it very difficult to communicate the problem, according to rep Newt Gingrich. 
Political activists on the left make the same complaint about the reporting from Central America. They claim that not enough publicity have been given to human rights abuses by the security forces in El Salvador and in Guatemala or to the CIA's not-so-secret war against Nicaragua. Few of these critics on either side have any idea what it's like to try to gather information in Central America. Yet, both sides expect reporters to write about the region as if there were never any confusion, never any doubts, as if everything always fell into place neatly, confirming the critics' preconceived notions. They are asking the impossible, omniscience from human beings who are covering the imprecise and ever-shifting situation. Others have already eulogized Torgerson and Cross, so that is not my intent here. I want more understanding of the difficult task confronting their surviving colleagues in Central America, and some appreciation of the work that they are trying to do. Hey listeners, I have a great news for you. I'm here to incentivize you to create your own podcast just like me. I couldn't think of a better partner than Buzzsprout, and I recommend them for you as a beginner in podcasting. Buzzsprout can help you with publishing your own podcast in every major platform, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. They also automatically publish on your personalized website, and they give you all the statistics in detail that you want. To start your own podcast and to win a $20 Amazon gift card, follow the instructions on the link in my show notes. If I can do it, you can do it too. Good luck on creating your very own podcast. Next, I'll be reading about Latino California on page 85. This story was published in October 25th, 1985, called Latino C, Hispanic No. For several years now, I have waged a personal campaign against the growing use of the ugly and imprecise word Hispanic as a term to describe all United States residents of Latin American extraction. It seems to be losing a battle because... In the U.S. government and corporate America, including my colleagues in the news media, persist in using the word. But I have not changed my mind. In fact, I'm rapidly coming to the conclusion that we must not only do away with the word Hispanic, but the whole artificial concept behind its use. For contrary to what some self-serving Latino activists would have us believe, there is no ethnic group or voting bloc in this country that can accurately be called Hispanic. To explain why, I must restate my objections to the word itself. First, it is not what Latinos normally call themselves. Walking to a Latin America barrio from SLA to Miami's Cali Ocho and ask people what they are. You get all kinds of answers, including Latino, Chicano, Boricua, Cubano, Mexicano. But unless you wander into the offices of some government-funded poverty programs, you won't hear people call themselves Hispanic. The closest you ever come in New Mexico, where some residents trace their ancestry to the state Spanish settlers, Hispano. But notice that they use the original Spanish word, not a translation. Second, the word has become bureaucratized. Census officials, under pressure to get more accurate count in the 80s of persons of Latin American extraction living in the country, needed one word that would cover Mexican Americans, Puerto Ricans, and Cuban Americans as well as immigrants from every place in south of the Rio Grande. They picked Hispanic out of the dictionary, where it is defined as an adjective referring to Spanish or Spanish and Portuguese. 
A better choice would have been Latino, which the dictionary defines as a noun referring to a Latin America. The word is widely used by Latinos already, as noted above. This pressure for a categorical word to define the ethnic grouping was put on the Census Bureau by Latino activists who argued, with some merit, that the consistent undercount of Latinos in this country was depriving them and the states and the cities that they lived in of their fair share of government funds and services. But once it was used by the government, the word Hispanic began to be applied far too loosely. Corporations in the media picked it up when the Census Bureau announcement that it had it indeed undercount the number of Latinos in this country and that they were in fact one of the fastest growing segments of the national population, every political interest group that could claim even tenuous ties to the Latino community organized a Hispanic caucus. True, the very Latin American groups in this country shared ties of commonality, but most are members of Roman Catholic Church and other Christian religions, so they work together quite effectively on religious issues. Most speak some Spanish, so Cuban Americans from Florida work with Chicanos from California to fight laws that limit the use of Spanish in this country and to promote bilingual education programs for Spanish-speaking youngsters. But beyond language and religion, and especially in politics, there is a commonality among U.S. Latinos. When they vote as a bloc is in the local elections as a Chicano bloc, a Cuban bloc, a Puerto Rican bloc. They were enforced last week at the University of Texas Conference on Ignored Voices, Public Opinion Pools, and the Latino Community. Representatives of several polling organizations, including the Gallup Pool, the New York Times CBS Pool, and the Los Angeles Times Pool, attended, and all of them explain how hard it is for them to get a precise fix on what the Latinos think about national issues and even how they may have voted in national election. In 1984 presidential vote, for example, three major broadcast news varied from 32% to 46% in their estimates of President Reagan Latino support. The best explanation for this uncomfortably wide margin was offered by a polling specialist for the Southwest Voter Registration an education project which has run hundreds of voter registration drives in Latino communities across the nation and keeps a careful tab on Latino voting tendencies. Their breakdown of Reagan's Latino support focused on national origin groups in different parts of the country. Project analysts found that Reagan support ranged from 93% among Miami's Cuban to 18% among Mexican-Americans in the Midwest. What political profession in the right mind would lump two such disparate groups in a single voting bloc? Even Rep. Bill Richardson, the chairman of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, admitted in his keynote speech that this year the caucus, which is made up of 17 congressmen of Mexican, Puerto Rican, and Portuguese descendant, has not voted as a bloc on such Hispanic issues as immigration reform and aid to the Contras in Nicaragua. These realities should dispel the myth that all Latinos in this country fit into a single interest group. At the very least, they should force all Hispanic promoters to be precise about which people they are referring to. And I feel like I just need to put like a little comment in this one. And I feel that it's something so current still this whole thing now with people wanting to use latinx or latino latina hispanic it's still such a big deal where to fit all latinos in here and and it's just something that 
you know, we're not all the same. We are so different. Like, in fact, I come from the only place that don't speak Spanish in Latin America. We are definitely not the same. We don't have the same issues. And that was my reading for all of you guys. I really hope you guys enjoyed. I know it was too much, a lot of stories, different contexts, different times, different decades, and even centuries. <laughs> But I really hope you guys enjoyed. And thank you so much, listeners, for being here with me every week. I'm also here to ask you guys to follow us in our Facebook page, Journalist Talk, in our Instagram at News. And also our website, www.podpage.com slash journalist-talk. And that's it, everybody. Thank you so much. I hope I'll see you guys in the next episode. Bye.